welcome to the You Had Me at Curia podcast, part two of November's Staff Picks. This is the podcast that gives the team at Curia a chance to discuss some of their favorite films on the platform for the month. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. I'm going to sit down with a few members of the team, and we're going to talk about some of their favorite films. But first up, let's talk about what collections we're going to be discussing. We have At All Costs, Film Noir, Food for Thought, and of course, The Circuit. First up, Jordan Jacinto is talking to us about two sections. We're going to be discussing At All Costs and Film Noir. Jordan, what exactly does At All Costs mean? You know, it's interesting, Ricky, because most of these films, I kind of think they have this sort of uh, adrenaline junkie feel, which is another collection that we're doing. Um, So I purposefully chose a film that's not necessarily about, you know, racing or um, like an athletic sort of ability. And I chose The Gambler. What made you choose uh, Carl Rice's scripted by James Toback, The the Gambler? I love James Caan. I felt like it, it kind of picks up on our last conversation when we were talking about the keep for Bloodlust. And, you know, we mentioned Thief and how that's one of our favorite, you know, both you and I. Um, so I wanted to revisit James Caan, you know, about, what was this, like eight years before Thief or so? Seven years? Yeah, it's like 70, 73, and Thief, I think, is 81. Yeah, I think it's just, it's kind of this perfect balance of, you know, Carl Rice being a founding member of Free Cinema, which is like essentially a, a documentary film movement in the UK that kind of like rejected any sort of commercial appeal, right? And still, this is very much an American Hollywood picture. Um, and because of that, though, I think it it kind of, balances this line perfectly of being, um, you know, commercially viable, but at the same time, very gritty and and uncompromising in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, there there is some there is this period of time in the 70s where um, it feels like the 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 main idea was to film it like a documentary, if at all possible. And I think the gambler uh really really hits that you get to the 80s and people start expanding a little more on what what the aesthetic can be there but there was something about the 70s where it's like make it look as gritty and as real and sometimes even as static as possible and let someone like james Kahn be the raw energy and nerve that 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 carries the movie exactly and he's so fantastic in this film and i didn't realize i was reading up about it but he's uh, been very outspoken about this but he was battling his own cocaine addiction during filming so he kind of had like a real personal insight into this gambler who was um battling this addiction and that's it's interesting i think this is a very uh it's like a time capsule sort of film of 
um, you know, not only American society, but that 1970s gritty New York and how sort of how gambling addicts were stigmatized. It's like not taken as seriously as it would be today. You know, it doesn't like on the on the DSM, like it, it qualifies as an actual addiction today. And back then it doesn't. And you see how that just perpetuates the illness and the character of Axel Freak. And, uh, you know, James Tobach kind of explores religion throughout the script and throughout the film. And it's interesting because, um, you know, James Kahn is Jewish himself. So is James Tobach. And I think Carl Reese too, right? It seems like they they have a lot to say about religion and sort of repentance. And that's essentially the driving factor for Axel Freed in my mind. It's like he hasn't, he keeps spiraling as out of control, you know, at all costs. He keeps, the stakes keep rising. He keeps um, getting himself into more and more trouble, but still he doesn't experience any real consequences. And without giving away the ending, I think his, that last little scene is his attempt to feel some consequences. Well, he and also he keeps raising the stakes. I mean, that's one of the things about the characters in these movies where you you as the sort of writer almost get a pass in terms of creating a character that is never going to do well for themselves and always going to put themselves in a worse situation, thereby like creating greater tension. Usually characters are trying to get themselves out of tense situations, whereas the gambler, Uncut Gems, California split, they're almost actively trying to put themselves into worse situations to see how far to the bottom they can go. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's also done with like the blending of Axel's worlds. You know, this is a guy who is a really talented English professor, right? And he really cares about his students and he talks about, you know, Dostoevsky and he's really passionate about it. And that world in the beginning of the film is separate from his personal life where he's a gambling addict and slowly, but surely those two worlds start to meet. And I, I can't remember a film recently that had me as conflicted as I felt, you know, in the last sequence when, um, you know, he's sort of forced to do something and to blend those two worlds together. Um, you know, everyone right now is talking about a certain South Korean series on a certain streamer that is doing really well, but it's hard to find a a film that kind of touches upon all of those things that that South Korean series does and that the gambler does in a lot of ways is sort of, you know, making the lines murky between what's right and what's wrong. A lot of American content does have that happy ending and it's usually like, you know, outside forces that are increasing the stakes where in that series, it's, um, you know, the the morality gets skewed and blurred and, and it really puts you in those character shoes. And watching The Gambler, I was like, wow, this has all of that, but it's from 1974. You know, I can't really remember a, a more recent uh, film that's, that's well known that continues to do that. Um, for my, at all costs, I picked, uh, Michael Ritchie's, uh, 1969 film downhill racer starring Robert Redford and, uh, the God Gene Hackman. How fast must a man go to get from where he's at?
you put together two good years and you win a couple of Well, I just hope right you don't end up asking yourself the question some folks ask me. What's he doing? And um, it, uh, I had never seen it. I wanted to watch it because I like Michael Ritchie's. Some, I like Smile and I like Bad News Bears and uh, The Candidate. I think he's just a great filmmaker, especially in this period of time. And um, it's, you know, just it's it's kind of just like a Michael Ritchie movie in the sense that it's very it's almost like feels objective at times in its camera work. But it's missing some of the a lot of the humor that comes with Smile and comes with um Bad News Bears. But that said, there's something fascinating about a filmmaker who just wants to go in and shoot a uh, a sport and the people behind the sport and this idea of like winning, like you said, quote unquote, you know, or like the collection says at all costs. But the um, the idea of like, if you do win at all, at all costs, like, does it matter if you deserved or didn't deserve to win, you know, kind of like at the end of Saturday Night Fever when they win the trophy, but know that the that the the Hispanic couple should have won and didn't because of racism. Something like that kind of happens in the movie and Redford and Gene Hackman have to kind of contend with themselves and whether or not they deserve to win. Yeah, it's it's a really it's another sort of time capsule, you know, of like Americana in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's a it's a sports drama, right, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, it's a sports drama for for sure and it's also not even really that dramatic. Like I'm not I'm not trying to sell the movie short or anything, but it doesn't necess- it, it it really is trying to focus on a character who wants to win, but it doesn't have the drama of something like Rocky. It's 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 almost operating on a kind of uh, uh, a flatness that I find interesting and compelling. These, uh, for for movies, especially in this period of time, because no one would really even could even bother to make a movie like that anymore, and almost like an objective telling of a narrative of a, of a of a fictional story. But um, it it it's interesting in that regard because most you know at all costs you know seeking the championship movie are high dramatic stakes, and in 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 at in downhill racer, it's it, 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 they're almost intentionally not doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. And Robert Redford and Gene Hackman is just so iconic. You can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah, You can't beat Redford and Gene Hackman and you can't, uh, you can't really beat Gene Hackman ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's the best. Yeah. No, this is, this is one of those gems where, you know, what was the year? It was like 69 it came out or? I believe, I believe 69. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a, a time capsule itself. I was just getting at before, like how I feel like skiing was uh, more popular in, in that time period. You know, obviously we still watch like the winter games and, and stuff every two years for the Olympics. But, um, you know, it's really exciting to see a film like this and to look back on it and to see, um, see something that was, I feel like a bit more universal back then. If that makes sense. You know, I feel like more folks, at least upper class folks, were really into skiing. And to so and mm-hmm. so to see Robert Redford on, you know, going for it all is uh something really exciting and I think worth uh checking out if you haven't seen it. Agree. Um and you wanted to talk about Le Mans as well. Right? I, I did I yeah, let's let's call it an honorable mention only because did sure. you see who the face of uh of the, or who is the new ambassador of Tag Heuer? No, I and I don't know what any of that just meant. So, so Tag Heuer is the the watch brand, 
And uh, Steve McQueen wears this iconic model called the Monaco. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's like Paul Newman, like the Daytona Rolex, um, you know, these iconic actors and turned race car drivers would wear these pieces. And now, you know, at auction, they go for tens and, you know, thousands of dollars. And uh, Steve McQueen was the most iconic face of the brand, Tag Heuer, that makes the Monaco model. And just last week, they found a new ambassador in Ryan Gosling. And it's kind of interesting because Ryan Gosling hasn't partnered with a company ever. Like he's not selling, you know, Nespresso's. He's not, he's not doing commercials overseas or anything. Uh, but all of a sudden he pops up as the new brand ambassador of Tag Heuer. And uh, Tag Heuer says, not since Steve McQueen in Le Mans is, uh, have we had such an iconic face. So I wanted to to revisit Le Mans and and see that watch and and how it captured you know sort of this iconography at that time and given the news last week that they're now you know doing this new partnership with Ryan Gosling who they're equating to Steve McQueen. Le Mans. The essence is speed. The objective is winning. And the danger is dying. Le Mans, where hour by hour, lap after lap, the man-to-man competition of champions never stops. Do you think it will be like a Nürburgring, a race between you and Stahler? I hope not. Would this uh, be the same kind of race you had with Delaney at the Nürburgring? Well, uh, up next, we're doing film noir. Um, you know, I've been asking... Uh, the Curia representatives, for lack of a better way to put it, representative seems like an unnecessarily form, formal word, uh, who I've been talking to and uh, about these collections and asking them to define them. But, I, you know, film noir, film noir. I don't think we need to define. If you're listening to a podcast about movies, you probably know what film noir is, I'm assuming, right? I hope so. You have chosen a banger of a classic. Uh, I, I love this film so much. A huge influence on so many movies, but I think specifically on Reservoir Dogs, uh, and that's uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, right? Correct, yes. You ever take a few thousand? I figure the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. Why did you choose this movie? This, you know, I hadn't, I think I saw it in film school years ago. And so I wanted to watch it again. Um, so it's, it's Stanley Kubrick's third film overall. Um, and he made it, it's his first, considered his first major Hollywood film, meaning he made some yeah. sort of independently financed films on shoestring budgets. And this sort of came to him when he met um, producer James B. Harris and they uh, hit it off. You know, Harris thought that Kubrick was brilliant. I think Kubrick was like 25 or 26 at the time. You know, this is mid fifties. Yeah. 
And I think his other one of his other like independently financed movies prior to the killing is in the film noir section as well, which is Killer's Kiss. Yes. For for people who are listening and want to check it out. Yeah. Yes. I thought about watching that one um as well, but something about, you know, the killing I, I think is a bit more accessible, especially for folks, you know, like you said, if you know what film noir is, you're excited about this collection. But for some folks that maybe aren't familiar, I feel like this is a good place to start in this collection with the killing because like you said it went on to inspire a lot of filmmakers whose techniques we still see today um you know tarantino not not only in reservoir dogs but in in other films you know playing with that non-linear structure um this is really the first time that it's it was done so well and um i think they they made this movie for I think I saw like $300,000, which is just over like $3 million today. So like a relatively, you know, there's a lot of money back then, but by today's standards, still a, a low budget studio film, right? I think it was United Artists that wound up doing it. And the the execution of it is just like, you see, it, it feels so different than Kubrick's later work that he became most known for, you know, like Clockwork Orange, even all the way to Eyes Wide Shut. You know, a lot of people think of Kubrick as establishing these big, you know, sort of stunning wide shots that have like a a one point perspective and the art direction in the scene sort of contributes to the narrative. Um, You know, the way the characters are moving, the way the set looks. And there's some of that here, but this is more it almost feels like a play. I don't know if you feel like that, Ricky. It's well, it's written by, it's written by Jim Thompson. Who's kind of, or one of the writers on it is Jim Thompson, the novelist, who's kind of one of the, one of the gods of noir around this, around this time of noir pulp literature. But what I was going to say is what it feels like to me often is that people so often only cite the style of Kubrick films when they're talking about him. And they rarely discuss um how misanthropic he is and how often he is very much in a cold way mocking his characters or like laughing at their circumstances in the similar in the similar vein that the coen brothers do i think and the killing you really see it right away like never has there been a movie about such a group of losers failing than the killing like right from the start you're like these guys are not going to be able to pull this together there's no way these guys have it at all like they're all failures in some like part of their life and they're using this as a means to, they're using this robbery as a means to fix that but where their failures is like you know their wives hate them their 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 gambling problems they're just like they're such losers and kubrick all along the way is i hate to say it he's 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 not mocking them in like a overly clever or uh, you know parodic way, but he is kind of show like a lot of the laughs come from how much of like failures these these men are totally. without even the robbery occurring. That's a great comp, like the Cohen brothers, because it's almost this clinical approach to it. Where yeah, it's not it's not like sarcastic. It's just like you're in and you're out, and and you yeah. know the the characters speak for themselves. And in their cases, it's like it, they're not saying much and you're just waiting to see how this thing unfolds. And sure enough, you know, like the last 25 minutes, it uh, it, it all does go sideways. Um, but the ending is actually quite uh, emotional 
I found. Do you remember the ending of yeah. it? And ends on this kind of uh, bleak, emotional beat. Um, so it's it's just interesting because a lot of Kubrick stuff, like you said, he's he's known for his style and uh, you know for his amazing sort of shots that he composed because he was such a amazing photographer. Um, but but this... he's a bleak fatalist. He is yes. a bleak fatalist in all of his movies, which in some ways makes him human. Like that's his version of humanity. That's how he sees. That's how, that's how he sees human nature unfolding. But the killing, I think, I, I think you know, is is the first moment that we get to see that bleak fat- fatalism really play out. And then it plays out in, you know, it plays out in Lolita. It's in Doctor. Of course, it's in Doctor Strange Love. Right. I mean, Doctor Strange Love ends with the bomb being dropped. But then you know, Barry Lyndon, which I got the chance to see in the theater on thirty five a couple weeks ago, it has has that same fatalism and Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. It's 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 all there. He's like great filmmakers. He's always kind of re like you know remaking the same film just on different canvases and with different characters. I think totally, I agree. What did you pick for film noir, Ricky? Uh, for film noir, I picked Samuel Fuller's. It's great because it has guts and the star who always gives you everything he's got, Gene Evans, as America's great fighting editor in the first terrific struggle for a free press on the most famous street in the world, the lusty street of blood and ink, Park Road. Introducing a wonderful new star, Mary Welch, magnetic, man-tempting, ruthless queen of Park Road. Oh, you could have a lot of Sam Fuller for 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 those who don't know is like a a slightly lesser known uh, filmmaker from the 50s and 60s, particularly. And he worked up until the 80s. But he was a kind of uh, OG B movie filmmaker, but who also injected like a lot of really great dialogue and really smart guy. He was a journalist before he was a a filmmaker in Park Row and specific is about um uh, journalists in the 1880s who are sort of like carving out new newspapers uh, on Park Row in New York City. And uh, what I love about the film is that it's bookended by these extremely patriotic ideas of uh, of journalism and the free press. But everything in between is an extremely cynical depiction of journalism in media that is an almost like <laughs> flat out like... Um, uh, like a, a a flat out kind of like shelling of 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 journalists and media. Like everybody's working for themselves. Everybody's like thinking about an angle to portray the news to sell the newspaper better. Sometimes they're even making the news themselves. But the movie begins and opens with like because of journalists, you have the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> or because of jur- because of Benjamin Franklin, you have the free press. And like it opens on this shot of a Benjamin Franklin statue on Park Row saying that he's like the godfather of the free press and it's on the statue. But then halfway through the movie, uh, one of the, the main character is smashing somebody else's head against the Benjamin Franklin statue. So I just love the idea of thinking of Sam Fuller like pitching this movie and someone and, and being like, don't worry, don't worry. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be all about how America has a free press and it's a really beautiful thing. And people only reading like the first two pages and the last two pages of the script and everything else, he was able to just cram in everything cynical that he felt about uh, American industry and the free press. Um, it's a great movie. Some, some great Fuller, uh, Sam Fuller moments and kind of one of his lesser 
lesser known movies, but uh, a pretty great one nonetheless. That's a pretty good uh, parallel to today, you know, in this sort of clickbait world. It's like the media is always balancing this, um, you know, battle for free press and and uh, defending how prestigious they are. But there is this <laughs> there's this idea that it's it's just kind of schlock in between and, and could be dressed up on either side, you know, like the film. Right. Movies. And he- yeah, and like even even the media that we consider to be prestige or high end media still has an audience that they're playing to, and those audiences' fears and ideologies are a guiding force to how they make their money, and so therefore they have to play them up. They can't they can't really speak truth to them. They often have to say, "Oh no, no, that fear is founded. That is that is correct. That is correct." Whether you're on the, you know, whatever political spectrum you're on, that's happening. Right. And I always think that these films that depict the media, um, you know, all throughout film history are interesting because just was it like 10 years before this, you have like the Philadelphia story and his girl Friday and and kind of those Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane. Yeah. Yeah. Citizen Kane. And you have, uh, you know, leaving Citizen Kane out, just those other two examples, it's like the screwball comedy version of the media and how high stakes it is because it's, you know, prestigious, but we know it's sardonic and all these things. And then 10 years later, we have this sort of this turn in film noir where, uh, you know, the way media is depicted and accepted is a bit more, um, bit more sarcastic, right? Yeah. Well, Jordan, uh, thanks so much for talking to me. Good picks. Ricky, always a pleasure. Really appreciate it, man. My story would be incomplete without a quote from you. Sometimes it takes more than a quote to complete a story, Mr. Mitchell. That's why I dropped in. All right. Complete the story. Well, I was in the midst of champagne, and I came to the decision it would be a very good idea if we got married. Oh, a merger. Your masthead and mine. We could elope with tomorrow's first issue. It'd be a wonderful honeymoon. All right, now we're joined by Jared Neese, who is going to give us uh, staff picks on two sections. Well, really just one, because we have an entire podcast coming out in about a week that's dedicated to the other section. So so first, let's briefly talk Food for Thought, which will be the podcast in a week. Uh, Jared, what is food for thought and, um, you know, what does it have to do with uh, with this time of year and choosing this collection for November? Uh, well, thanks, Ricky. Um, you know, food for thought was always, you know, you try to we try to program seasonally. And, you know, the biggest season in November is obviously Thanksgiving and um, especially in America and gathering around a table with family members for better or worse. And. You know, food is a is a big part of that that celebration. Uh, you know, these films are a little bit more uh, the docs that you would mostly docs, um, some hybridness going on here. But uh, the films that you know you you kind of are thinking a little bit more. They're a portrait of a of a chef or or a, you know a food writer or, or a restaurant. Um, and then you know, there's films like. Uh, uh, you know, sushi, the global catch and steak revolution and, and search for general, general Tao um, that look into more of the cultural aspect of food and how that's related. So the, the main, the, and, and then obviously for us, the, the funnest part of this is the trip series or the first three films in the trip series, the Steve Corgan and uh, Rob Dryden. Uh, they take these amazing road trips across Europe 
and eat food and talk and you know uh it's insightful it's funny it's sad so it's just uh it's a good time at the movies uh but we're excited to right and um like like I said at the beginning, we're going to be going over it uh, with with a little more depth in next week's podcast. So let's get to uh, the circuit, which is the series of films, the rotating series of films that Curia picks to highlight some of the best works that have been coming out of uh, film festivals. Uh, Jared, you chose Werner Herzog's 2010 film Cave of Forgotten Dreams. This cave had been perfectly sealed for tens of thousands of years. It contained by far the oldest paintings ever discovered. It is as if the modern human soul had awakened here. I, I didn't grow up watching, you know, independent film. Uh, you know, so in kind of in college, I, you know, I got my a lot of my knowledge from video stores. And, you know, watching documentaries by, by Werner Herzog, it, it just kind of changed your perception of, of what documentaries could be or are or, or how documentarians put themselves in the films as well. Um, you know, for me, it was always very much, you know, the documentary documentarians on the, on the other side of the camera and then, you know, whatever they're documenting is on the, the other side. But Werner obviously, you know, in, uh, inserts himself uh, very uh, well into his films. And this film in particular um, was just, you know, when you're at, I, I did see this at, at the Toronto Film Festival whenever it premiered, and you know, it, it's a film about these ancient cave paintings in France that have never been shown to the public. Uh, they don't let many people in there. You know, ever since they were found, they they kind of sealed it off because of of all the gases that could like uh, degrade the the artwork. And and they're these beautiful, you know, portraits of of animals and um, and the way that he documents are it's it's very well done when it comes to you know the way he presents um documenting the cave documenting the the art but but then you know as, as Werner does it's just you know his take on it and like what were the people like there you know these 30,000 years ago um you know what were their what were their desires what were their thoughts what were their feelings and so it's it he takes this way different approach than most people would have take to to you know and he focuses on the the people behind it, the, the scientists, and you know, there's just so many little funny moments and you know, awkwardness that he 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 uh, he brings whenever he makes a film. But it's a it's a beautiful film. Uh, this is actually I think I saw it in 3D. This was like during the 3D craze of the you know 2010s back. Right, that that like that like seven to ten year 3D craze. Yeah, it's totally. The um, future of movies. It was Avatar, right? It was just like you know. Yeah. Well, actually, I just a brief Herzog story, really fast. When I was in college, I went to see the White Diamond and saw Herzog speak afterwards, which yeah. is only about six years before uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, and it's right around the time that I feel like he was really starting to get very like well known for documentaries. Um, and I think because uh, I think Grizzly Man was just a couple. It was this, right around the same time that 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 White Diamond came out. Grizzly Man was the following year. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he. He shows this movie, and in the movie, there's a scene where this guy speaks, and uh, he delivers kind of like this beautiful poem to the camera, and it's in the middle of him. It's very Herzogian moment, right, where it's like uh, out of nowhere, someone is just say, like delivering some kind of poetry to mm -hmm. the camera, 
And um, he's talking about it and he's saying how, you know, the first couple takes didn't work. So he kept having this guy do it again and again and then moving to different locations and like getting them to do it. And uh, a kid in the in the audience stood up and he was like, but you call this movie a documentary. Don't you feel like you have any responsibility to, to fact? And Herzog said, if fact is something you are interested in, I recommend a big yellow book of telephone numbers for you, and you can sit and be entertained by that all day. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good impersonation. I like it. Um, I chose uh, Ken Loach's uh, film from just two years ago. Uh, Sorry, we missed you. You name it, I've done it. Concreting, plumbing. Is that you too? I've done it all. Why'd you give it up? It's just gone from job to job. There's always someone on the back, isn't there? Come on, we've got time to make up, let's go. I'd rather work on my own now and be my own boss. Let's just get a few things straight at the start, though, shall we? Hi, Rosie. Wake up. Dad'll go mental if you miss school again. Now, if you don't move, then you're going to get a ticket. Oh, Rosie. You're a fucking laugh. You don't work for us, you work with us. So you're on a contract to get paid for the visits? Keep this happy. Um, Ken Loach being um, this uh, natural realism uh, British filmmaker known for depictions of the working class. Um, he's got a long list of films that I, 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 I can't really, you know, cast first cow, um, but mm-hmm. then a, a number of others. And Sorry We Missed You follows a... Um, essentially what is like an Amazon driver, though I don't, they don't use the, the, the word Amazon uh, guy who in the UK, who is delivering packages to, to everybody, but he is kind of a, he doesn't own the vehicle though. He pays for the vehicle. Like he owns it. He's got a family at home that he's trying to support um, and things are falling apart with the family uh, because he's never home. And it's really just about how the working person gets crushed mm. by the gig by the gig economy, and it's a fairly brutal depiction of that. Yet somehow still very much filled with life. Uh, and I think it's a, I think it's almost a a, a necessary movie for like every, anybody who orders an Amazon package, myself included, mm. to watch. Um, it's a really brutal depiction of what it's like to not have any ownership of your own of, of your work and to have and to be further and further crushed in, in the gig tech economy. Uh, but uh, that said, again, it is kind of uh, an extremely entertaining, well-made movie. So I'd hate to I, I'm sure people are hearing that and saying that sounds depressing. I don't <laughs> want to watch it. And, and, and in some ways it is. But it's also, um, you know. Think about the guy who uh, is sleeping in a van to pick up the packages so that he can deliver all of them in a day and then do it again the next day for like less than minimum wage in a van that he doesn't own. And, uh, yeah. you know, and how that affects him and his family. I mean, we're so disconnected from how we get the goods that we consume at this point. It's good to be reminded um, now and again that there's an actual person working to get these things to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it's a it's a, a a really honest ending, but it is one of the more uh, brutal, heartbreaking endings uh, I've seen in a movie in a long time. I live for that in movies, but 
that said, I know some people uh, may not. But even if you don't, you should watch this movie because you <laughs> probably order from Amazon or some other some other company, and so you should see how, what the process is like for people. Um, yeah, that was a that was my pick, and I, I right. love you know I love British realism, kitchen sink realism. I've always loved Ken Loach and Mike Lee. Mike Lee probably being my favorite filmmaker. Well, this played Can and Tiff and a bunch of other fests, and you know it, it's definitely indicative of the kind of films that you're going to find in the circuit, where you know they they are some of the harder stories, but also really beautifully told stories and made by you know most of the time uh, uh, really talented and brilliant filmmakers. Well, cool. All right, thanks, Jared. Thanks, Ricky. That does it for this month's staff picks on the You Had Me at Curio podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. I want to thank the staff for choosing some great movies to talk about. And uh, we'll see you guys next month. Thanks. Thanks.